0: Enjoy the Game by Lionel Burney Chapter 1 Elton's Dream Who could have known that a slip, a stumble and a sloppy back pass by a Gillingham defender called David Galvin would have such a profound effect on the future fortunes of Watford Football Club? On a cold, drab November afternoon in 1976, as 4th Division Watford toiled against their 3rd Division opponents, time was ebbing away from the Hornets and their manager Mike Keane. There is no day like FA Cup first round day for reminding a club of its status. The glamour and potential glory of a third-round clash with one of the big boys is just a couple of steps away, but defeat means there will be no temporary reprieve from the humdrum of a lower division existence. The small band of Watford supporters who had travelled to Kent to see if their team could pull off a minor shock against the team that sat one division above them did so in the hope that they might be on course for a match against Liverpool or Manchester United. They needed some hope to cling to because the league season certainly wasn't shaping up to much. As the clock ticked towards 20-5, to a goalless draw and a replay at Vicarage Road looked inevitable. Mike Keane didn't know he needed one, but Galvin was about to throw him a lifeline. Earlier that day, Watford's directors, the chairman, Elton John among them, had met for lunch at a hotel on their way to Priestfield for the match. They chewed over Keane's tenure and decided it was time for a change. If Watford did not knock Gillingham out of the cup that afternoon, Keane would be sacked on Monday morning. With less than a minute to go, Galvin fought clumsily to bring a poor pass under control near the touchline. Without looking, he half-turned and played it back to his goalkeeper, only to see a figure in yellow dart forward. The Gillingham fans realised the pass was going to fall woefully short. Alan Mays, Watford's lively forward, pounced, intercepting the ball before taking it round the keeper... 1-0 I always maintain that was one of the most important goals scored in Watford's history says Muir Stratford one of the directors who had pondered Keane's future that much time if we had not won that game we would have sacked Mike Keane on the Monday and if we had done that there is absolutely no way Graham Taylor would have been manager of Watford Football Club we simply wouldn't have got him in the middle of a season Mike Keane was a pleasant, personable man, but he was neither ruthless nor single-minded enough to halt the decline. One problem for the manager was that the most successful year in the club's history was still a recent memory. With Ken Furphy at the helm, the club had been promoted to the 2nd Division and reached an FA Cup semi-final as the 60s gave way to the 70s, only for the lack of vision from a risk-averse chairman, Jim Bonzer, causing it all to unravel. After clambering up the ladder to those unprecedented heights, Watford had slipped right back to where they had started. Keane had presided over relegation to the 4th Division, and had been unable to galvanise the team for an instant return. Crowds had dwindled to a hard core of 5,000 or so, and Bonza, who had owned the club since the late 50s, seemed paralysed, unable to either stump up or sell up. Even as Furphy led the rise to the 2nd Division, Bonzer had been frugal. He was a self-made man from Preston who had earned his money building up his construction firm from scratch. But he failed to recognise the need to invest, seeing the big step to the First Division as unrealistic for a club like Watford and resenting the idea of spending money to stand still if the same result could be achieved more cheaply. Bonzo was also reluctant to welcome onto the board others who were prepared to add to the coffers. In the late sixties, a wealthy businessman called Dennis Mortimer had offered to put in a significant sum, but Bonzer feared it would dilute his control. Furphy finally realised the chairman was never going to loosen his grip on the purse strings and joined Blackburn Rovers. Mortimer took his money up the road to Luton Town and helped fund an era of success for the Hatters, and the Hornets slipped back down the divisions. "'To get on with Bonzer, you had to be a yes-man,' "'says Stratford, who joined Watford's board in 1971. "'It wasn't unusual for people not to get on with him. "'No one could ever doubt his commitment to the club, "'but it was basically a one-man show. "'He had come to the club when it was in desperate straits, "'and he'd ensured its survival, "'but he was a difficult man to get on with. "'He wanted his way, "'and he didn't want other people to have any power or influence. "'Initially, Bonza had been cautious about letting "'the flamboyant rock star Elton Hercules John join the board. Elton had neither a name nor an image that appealed to Bonzer, but Elton had money, and he had something even more valuable, something Bonzer could not claim. He had been a Watford supporter since childhood, when he was just little Reg Dwight, a boy who liked to stand on the crumbling old terrace between the rookery and the Schrodell stand known as The Bend. He had seen the shirt change from blue to gold, and the team transform from the Brewers to the Hornets. The contrast between Bonzer and Elton could not have been starker. Bonzer had an uneasy relationship with supporters and was not loved. Elton was a supporter. He'd carried the Hornets in his heart since childhood, had dreamt of playing for the team, and was now in a position to help the club off the pitch. Finally, in 1976, Bonzer was persuaded to sell his share of the club to Elton, who was now a vice president. The deal was done just as he was preparing for a lengthy tour of the United States, named with, typical understatement, The Louder Than Concord Tour. It was a strange marriage. The rock superstar with a dress sense as loud as his backing band, and the fourth division football club with a tumble-down home and a stack of debts. But Elton saw beyond Bonza's limited horizons. His passion, vision and wealth was obvious. While those outside the club may not have taken him seriously, and some wrote him off as a rich kid looking for a new toy to play with, around the boardroom table they took him seriously. His intentions were clear. He just didn't quite know, at the outset, how to achieve them. From day one he was totally flamboyant and larger than life, says Stratford, but his interest in the football was complete. He made no bones about it. He didn't really know how things worked, but he wanted to find out, and he wanted to make the club a success. Treading Water... Unable to string the wins together, and worse than that, not particularly easy on the eye, Watford had the look of a side resigned to another year in the basement after only 15 league games of the 1976-77 season. Victory over Gillingham in the FA Cup replay spared Keane temporarily, but Elton and the other directors had merely postponed their decision. Elton had money to invest, but collectively the board didn't feel Keane should be the one to spend it. That glamorous third-round tie didn't materialise either. Watford were dumped out of the cup in the second round by non-league Northwich Victoria, which surely would have been grounds for sacking the manager had the directors not decided to wait. It wasn't until April 1977, with another season in the 4th Division of Certainty, that Keane was finally dismissed. With a multi-millionaire at the helm, expectations had risen to match the chairman's profile. In 1976, Terry Chalice, the cartoonist at the Watford Observer, completed his allegorical painting that depicted with astonishing prescience the journey ahead. In it, a Watford player is taking his first tentative step out of the lower division wastelands as Elton, sitting astride a hornet, points towards the promised land, which is represented by the liver bird atop a distant mountain. The path ahead was clear. Now the search was on for a manager capable of matching Elton's considerable ambition. In terms of attacking the man, you're getting somebody to close him down and then your other fellow that's coming is coming in there to support and make the angle. But we want to do that at the same time. We don't want to see any ball sitting any of the opposition. I don't want to see the ball still. If it's one touch, we play it off one. If it's two touch, it's controlled and then it's played away again. Graham Taylor of 3rd Division, Lincoln City, was established as a promising young manager by 1977, and one or two bigger clubs had already considered him, but some wondered if he was ready to step up just yet. He was still only 32, and most clubs had at least a couple of players older than that. Hennage Dove, the Lincoln chairman, handed Taylor his break in management in December 1972. I was 28 years old, says Taylor. One day I was one of 24 players. The next day I was the manager of 23. Dove's faith was tested right from the start. Taylor's first 11 games as a football manager brought seven draws and four defeats. There was not outright rebellion on the terraces of Sinsel Bank, but people were asking questions, and there was the odd shout of Taylor out. It would have been easy for Dove to sack him, after all, who would kick up a fuss over the dismissal of a 28-year-old promoted to the role too soon, but Dove believed in his young protégé and stuck with him. John Ward witnessed what was at times an awkward transition from player to manager. A couple of years earlier, Ward had arrived at Lincoln as a teenage centre forward. On his first day, he was shown into the dressing room and given the peg next to the team captain, Taylor. A firm friendship that has lasted four decades was born. Graham was always destined to be a manager, says Ward. He'd qualified as a coach very young, before he was 20, and if it's possible to map out a life in this game, he had done it. There were murmurings of discontent during those eleven games, and some people thought it was a mistake putting a young person in charge, but Hennage Dove wanted to stick by his man. He was a lovely guy, and a very straight-laced gentleman, and he'd given the job to Graham because he felt he could do it, so he wasn't going to get rid of him rashly. The way Taylor turned things around was simple. He worked hard. We spent hours and hours on the training ground, says Ward. Graham was very thorough, and we became well organised. A sense of authority did not come immediately, and Taylor did not lay down the law at first. He had to earn the respect of men who, a few weeks earlier, had been his peers, his mates, and slowly they accepted him as the boss. He had some authority in leadership because he was the team captain, and they respected him for that. But he did it gently, because he had to, says Ward. He let things evolve, and the way he earned their respect was not by insisting he was the boss, but by taking responsibility for the team. He was a very likeable person and he won people over. In 1976, the Imps ran away with the 4th Division Championship, scoring 111 goals and setting a record points total by playing with a pace and verve that is still spoken of in reverential terms in Lincolnshire. The team was built on values that would become synonymous with Graham Taylor, a ferocious work ethic allied to an attacking instinct and a desire to entertain. During their charge towards the title, Lincoln demolished Watford 3-1 at Vicarage Road and 5-1 at Sensile Bank. Two of Watford's directors, Stratford and Jeff Smith, were particularly struck by the style of play, the controlled aggression and the eagerness with which Lincoln's players sought to shoot at goal. They wanted to know more about the man who had crafted such a side. We had this little corner of the boardroom, a sort of ante-room, where only the directors would go, says Stratford. We used to call it the Kremlin and it was where we'd go if we wanted a quiet word away from the other guests in the boardroom. After every match, we'd invite the opposition manager in for a drink. Stratford was bowled over by Taylor's enthusiasm and confidence. You don't have to spend very long with people to get a feel for them, and I think both Jeff and I were immediately impressed. Taylor talked more than the directors, which was unusual for a visiting manager, and, as he spoke, the ideas seemed to tumble from him with a passion that was infectious. He talked quickly but with clarity, shifting his weight from foot to foot as he held the attention of those around him. The opposition manager was demonstrating more energy, imagination and inspiration over a post-match drink than many of Watford's own players had mustered out on the pitch. It was evident to Stratford that Taylor was going places, even if Lincoln City would eventually prove unable to provide the finances to keep pace with his ambition. Dove had great faith in his manager but knew his club lacked the money to complete the journey Taylor had set out on. By March 1977, Lincoln had consolidated their position in the 3rd Division and Taylor's name was on the shortlist whenever another job came up. Dove was a shrewd operator. He knew he'd lose Taylor eventually, but when he did, he wanted Lincoln to get something out of it, so he offered an improved contract with an important clause. If Taylor left for another club, they'd have to pay Lincoln £20,000 in compensation. Lincoln had only ever sold one player for more money a striker called Andy Graver, which indicated the value Dove placed on his manager. When Elton got home from his tour, he headed to the studio to record an album, meaning he would now have plenty of time for his football club. Elton was not interested in kicking around in the fourth division any longer, and he knew he needed to do something to kickstart a revolution. The appointment of a new manager would be his first major decision as chairman, and he wanted it to be a statement of intent, something to inspire the supporters, grab the attention of the hacks on Fleet Street and help attract the players Watford would need to drag them out of the bottom division. Who could be better than Bobby Moore? Bobby Moore led England up to the Royal Box to receive the Jules Rimet Cup and the winner's medals. The only Englishman to have lifted the Jules Rimet trophy. Bringing a World Cup winning captain to Vicarage Road would put the club on the map straight away. Moore was 36 and about to call time on his playing career at Fulham. He was part of English football's heritage. Everyone remembered the July afternoon 11 years earlier when he held the trophy aloft at Wembley. But Stratford and Smith were far from starstruck. They felt Watford needed someone with a detailed knowledge of the lower divisions. They didn't want someone dour or down-to-earth for the sake of it. And it wasn't that they didn't share Elton's ambition... It's just they wanted someone who knew what lower division was all about. When the board first dropped a shortlist, Taylor's name failed to make much of an impression with the chairman. ''Elton, I have to say, had never heard of Graham Taylor,'' says Stratford. ''There was nothing terribly surprising with that. Nothing wrong with it either. But Jeff and I had been to all these lower division grounds for a number of years, and we knew the managers. Elton didn't.'' To Elton's credit, he was not rash or bullheaded; He sought advice. He asked the England manager, Don Revy, who he should appoint. Revy was unequivocal. Graham Taylor at Lincoln City. He's the man you want. One day in April 1977, Graham Taylor's phone rang. It was Don Revy, and Taylor instantly recognised the voice and instinctively straightened himself up in his chair. He had met Revy before, when the England manager gave a talk at a coaching course at the Lincoln and District Football Association, but to receive a call at home, this must be important. Revy got straight to the point. Are you under contract? he asked. Taylor explained that he'd only recently signed an extension with Lincoln. That's a shame, because I've just recommended you to a chairman. Oh yes, who's that? asked Taylor. It's Elton John. Silence. At Watford. More silence. Taylor's ego was punctured. At that moment my feelings for Don Revy sank, he says. Was this how little he thought of me? Lincoln were in the third division. Watford were in the fourth. Why on earth would Don Revy think I'd want to go there? And, I have to be honest, I thought, who is Elton John anyway? In one brief phone call, Taylor's self-image had been inflated and then deflated. It wasn't that he was expecting his next move to be to Anfield or Highbury— but to have the England manager recommend him for, where was it, Vicarage Road? How disappointing. The newspapers had already mentioned Taylor's name in much more prestigious company, but more than that, why would he want to drop back to the 4th Division when it had taken him the best part of four years to get Lincoln out of there in the first place? Watford didn't have any history to speak of, just a pop-star chairman whose music wasn't particularly to Taylor's taste anyway. A fortnight later Elton rang Taylor himself, and although Taylor did him the courtesy of listening to what he had to say, was no keener on the idea. So Elton went back to his first choice, Bobby Moore. They met for lunch at the Howard Hotel in London's Temple Place. The rock star and the World Cup winner got on well. Moore was looking for his first break in football management. Elton was seeking a high-profile figure to add status and prestige to the club before propelling the team through the divisions. As they shook hands at the end of their meeting, Moore believed it was a done deal. All that remained was for Elton to call to finalise the details. The following day, Jeff Powell, a journalist with the Daily Mail and a close contact and friend of Moore's, ran the story. Moore would be the next manager at Watford, it said in black and white. The first Stratford knew of it was when he picked up the paper. I was straight on the phone to Jeff Smith, and we were on to Elton pretty quickly, he says. Relieved that nothing had been signed, Stratford and Smith made their case to Elton. It wasn't that I objected to Moore on any personal level. I just couldn't see him being the right type of manager for Watford at the time. Could you see Bobby Moore standing on the terraces scouting a player or watching the reserves? Elton listened to his directors. The strength with which they stated the case for Graham Taylor, combined with the fact that they were pitching in favour of the same man Revy had recommended, won him over. I think he thought it was a happy coincidence that we were of the same opinion as the England manager, says Stratford. Perhaps he thought maybe these two do know what they're talking about after all. Elton still didn't know an awful lot about Graham Taylor, other than the record-breaking fourth division championship success he'd had at Lincoln. But if he could produce something similar for him at Watford, it would certainly get the ball rolling. The life of a football manager in the late 70s was not so far removed from that of the ordinary man on the terraces as it is today. They had a bit more money, perhaps, but they were not living on a different planet. In the early summer of 1977, the Taylor family went on their first overseas holiday, caravanning in France. With his wife, Rita, and two young children, Joanne and Karen, in the car, Taylor was keen to get home in a hurry. I was driving as fast as I could because I wanted to get home to watch the England versus Scotland game on television, he says. As soon as the final whistle went, the phone rang. It was Elton, who had also been watching the game and had waited for it to finish before calling. I know you said you weren't interested, but I won't feel I'm doing my job properly unless I meet you and explain what it is we want to do. I can't just say to my directors, Oh, I rang him, he said no, and that's the end of it, Elton said. Taylor said Elton would have to ask Lincoln's permission first, and so it wasn't until a week later that he travelled south, staying overnight in a hotel in Slough before heading to Elton's home in Windsor the next morning. For a man who had just been on his first foreign family holiday, the Rockstar's home was an eye-opener with its expensive furniture and artwork on the walls. Elton wasted little time in making an offer. It was like entering a different world, says Taylor. Here he was, offering me a five-year contract, worth four and a half times the money I was on at Lincoln. I have to be honest, at the time the money was a factor, of course it was. Taylor explained the business about Hennage Dove's £20,000 release clause. Elton didn't bat an eyelid. Taylor's solicitor had told him it would have been easy to argue the clause with a restraint of trade, but the way he saw it, if someone was prepared to pay Lincoln the money, why shouldn't they be compensated? Taylor asked Elton what he expected in return for a salary that would almost certainly make him the best-paid manager outside the First Division, and better paid than some in the top flight. This was a Watford team that had spent only three years in the Second Division, and all of the rest of its time in the lower divisions. "'So I was expecting Elton to say that he wanted me to get them back to the second division,' says Taylor. "'Instead, Elton replied, "'I'd like to get into Europe.' "'Europe? With the likes of Milan and Real Madrid. "'That would mean finishing among the top half-dozen in the first division or winning the FA Cup. "'Watford had just finished seventh in the fourth division, or, to put it another way, 75th out of 92.' "'I thought to myself, this fella's is crazy. "'He's a pop star. "'He's clearly got a lot of money, but he's living in the clouds.' "'Taylor tried to bring Elton back down to earth. "'I asked him what he thought it would cost to do that. "'He said he didn't know and threw the same question back at me. "'I thought, well, I'd better really frighten him here. "'I don't think you'll have any change out of a million pounds,' "'Taylor told Elton. "'Right,' came the reply. "'We'll give it a go.' For a moment, Taylor paused, and he looked across at Elton John, this pop star who had a million pounds to blow on an unfashionable fourth division club that had never finished higher than 18th in the second division. It almost seemed like an elaborate hoax, but there was a steely look in Elton's eyes. Well, that'll do for me, Taylor thought. Later that day, Taylor travelled to London for one of the big events of the year, the Football League's annual general meeting at the Café Royale. What Elton John didn't know was that Watford was not the only club to have approached Taylor. First Division West Bromwich Albion had just sacked Johnny Giles and contacted Taylor through a third party rather than seeking Lincoln's permission. After the meal, Taylor was beckoned over to West Brom's table where their directors sat, well fed, surrounded by the cigar butts and brandy glasses that follow an agreeable lunch. The offer they had made, Taylor, was a fair bit less than Elton's, but the chance to leap straight into the First Division appealed. West Brom's chairman was Bert Millerchip, who was later to become chairman of the Football Association. He was also aware of the £20,000 release clause in Taylor's contract and, as a solicitor, knew it would not stand up to much of a challenge. ''Well,'' Millerchip told Taylor, ''we'll agree to it, but we'll offer to pay it in instalments. We'll pay them £5,000 up front,'' but we won't pay them any more after that. Taylor was immediately turned off. I thought, how can they be saying this? I just didn't like their approach. Then Millerchip told Taylor, you haven't played in the First Division, coached in the First Division, or managed in the First Division, but we're prepared to take a risk on you. Albion's offer was a little more than half the one Elton had put on the table, and it came without the security of a contract meaning that if things didn't work out, he could be sacked without compensation. Taylor told the West Bromwich directors he had spoken to another club, not just because he wanted to strengthen his hand, but to be up front with them. Do you mind telling us who it is? asked one of the other directors. It's Watford. Watford? In the 4th Division? came the incredulous response. It was pretty much the same reaction as Taylor's when Revy called him, but now it put his back up. Then came something that really grated. But you'll be going to places like Halifax and Workington, said one of the directors through a puff of cigar smoke. Excuse me, said Taylor, distinctly unimpressed. Workington haven't been voted back into the league. At your meeting this afternoon, you all voted and Workington didn't get re-elected to the Football League. And you don't even know that. The Attitude of the West Bromwich Directors Their ignorance and the lack of respect they had showed for life in the lower divisions annoyed Taylor and made up his mind. He joined Watford. Lincoln got their £20,000 and the phone call Bobby Moore was awaiting never came. Elton felt bad about that and although he didn't tell the other directors, he made a significant payment to Moore out of his own pocket as an apology for the way things had turned out. It's fair to say Graham Taylor's appointment did not spark a rash of celebratory street parties in Watford. For those who had read the Daily Mail story and felt the frisson of excitement at the imminent arrival of the England World Cup-winning captain, there was a sense of disappointment. Taylor's salary, reported to be around £25,000 a year, created shockwaves. A cartoon by Terry Chalice in the Watford Observer depicted one supporter saying to another, "'When I read the terms,' I thought they'd signed Elizabeth Taylor, referring to the Hollywood star, reportedly the best-paid actor in the world at one time. But Taylor was not just a football manager. The job was not simply to revitalise a flagging football team, but to invigorate a club and an entire town. Taylor's title was general manager, and Elton told him, You're in charge, from the top down. Which is just how Taylor wanted it. What Taylor inherited was a shambles, There was no training ground, so they trained on public playing fields in Horseshoe Lane, Garston. There were barely any facilities at the stadium either. When Eddie Plumley arrived as Secretary and Chief Executive a little while after Taylor, he described it as a corrugated graveyard, and the training kit was full of holes. One of Taylor's first divisions was to evict the local Greyhound Association. They held regular race meetings on the cinder track surrounding the pitch, but seemed to have more rights over the use of the ground than the football club. When he arrived, the club was negotiating a new three-year deal which would have bought in £10,000. But Taylor told Elton, It's either the dogs or me. Are we running a football club or a greyhound track? The club's finances were in a mess and the secretary, Ron Rollett, was fretting because the overdraft had been extended again from £80,000 to £90,000. Elton wiped the slate clean and handed Taylor £20,000 to buy a player or two. More experienced than he had been when he first took over at Lincoln, Taylor was full of confidence and determined to hit the ground running. The priority was to get out of the 4th Division at the first attempt. The supporters had no idea Elton had told Taylor the target was to reach the 1st Division and play in Europe, so there wasn't any great sense of external pressure from the supporters. Crowds were small. Expectations were low. Most of the club's supporters would have considered the 3rd Division to be the club's natural level, with the hope of a season or two in the 2nd Division a bonus. Anything more than that seemed like a distant dream. But Taylor says... The pressure was actually on to deliver some results in one sense because Elton was spending money and I didn't want to waste it. Having said that, I didn't feel any pressure on myself because I was being allowed to do what I wanted to do. I was calling the shots, so there wasn't anyone holding me back or limiting me in what I wanted to do. There wasn't anyone to blame if something went wrong because I was running the show and as a manager that is the ideal situation to be in. The responsibility for results is yours, but you have the freedom to make the decisions you think are best for the team and the club. The first job was to have a look at the players he had inherited and work out which ones were willing and able to take up the challenge he was about to lay down and which ones he would have to ease towards the exit door. As he rolled up his sleeves to start work, the players had already picked up on the vibe. There were going to be some big changes around the place. End of chapter one. Next time, the Watford players have a wake-up call and realise they are going to work harder than they've ever worked before. Enjoy the Game by Lionel Burney Read by Colin Mace Produced by John Mooney Text copyright Lionel Burney 2010 Production Copyright 2023 by Lionel Burney, Colin Mace and John Mooney. All rights reserved. Lionel Burney asserts the moral right to be identified as the author of this work. Thank you for listening.